Hey, uh, my name is Van Cochran. I'm the lead pastor and just want to welcome you all here tonight. If, if you're a guest with us tonight, it's our honor and privilege to have you join us. And uh, for, for the first night of our Freedom Conference, it'll be tonight, tomorrow night at 6.30 again, and then Saturday morning at 10. So I hope you can come to all three of them. There is something really powerful about the cumulative effect of worship and worshiping and then worshiping again. And, and as well, hearing truth. And receiving ministry, there's there's a real powerful uh, aspect of that that just just builds and builds. And so uh, there are going to be people that are going to be set free tonight, people tomorrow night, people Saturday morning. And my anticipation is that all of us are going to take a step ahead in freedom. And then some are going to just take a giant step ahead in freedom. And uh, that, that's what we're all looking for. That's what we're moving towards. So uh, Bill Vanderbush is our, our speaker. And I first heard Bill at the Georgian Banoff Conference in uh, Columbus last spring and uh, heard Bill speak for an hour, and I thought, I really like that guy. In fact, I think he would really fit at our church. I liked the, liked the teaching he brought. I, I, I liked his style and the feel he had. And I just, just really felt like it was the right thing for us to have him here. And having, uh, really didn't get to talk to him, said hi that day, but uh, getting to spend some time with him today, I'm really excited about what God's going to bring to us through him. Before we have him come up, we're going to receive an offering. And uh, there, there's something powerful and beautiful in each one of our lives when we honor those who feed us. Well, we honor those who uh, bring, bring God's freedom and life to us. And so we're going to receive a love offering uh, for Bill and uh, that, that will um, just bless him. We want to bless him. And so I encourage you to uh, give generously as we receive this offering. You can give through the app. We have on our app one of the drop-down messages uh, says special speaker. And so if you want to give through the app, do that. I think you can give online, too. I think the same, the same uh, tag is online. But in, uh, in, in the epistles of John, uh, the apostle John said at one point, he said, you have done well to, send, to, to receive these brothers who are teaching and then to send them on their way, uh, taken care of well. And so it's, it's an honor and a privilege for us to have someone like this here and it's an equal honor and privilege for us to be able to participate in his ministry by giving to him. So, uh, ushers, uh, are you already in place here? Come on down. I'm just going to say a short prayer, and then you guys can receive the offering. There are baskets on the far left side. All right. On the app, it is guest speaker, okay? So guest speaker on the app, the drop-down. All right, so the baskets are on the far left. Just pass it down the aisle, and um, I'm going to pray and just say, Father, we're so thankful for your goodness, thankful uh, for how much you love us. We're, we're thankful that we can be here tonight and worship you and be in your presence. And Holy Spirit, we just, we just welcome you to be here in real power tonight. Open our minds. Op- open our understanding up so that we receive a deeper and deeper and deeper understanding and revelation of who you are and who you've made us to be in Christ. Thank you now that we can give and uh, just uh, bless these offerings and bless this brother, Bill Vanderbush, as he comes and teaches us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's welcome Bill Vanderbush. That didn't do anything. Did it? Test? Good. Awesome. I, 
I told friends I was coming to Cincinnati, they said, go get some Skyline Chili. <laughs> so I did. And I still don't know what it is. I don't, it's like nothing else I've ever eaten in my life. <laughs> it's, it's not chili. Like I know chili, you know, but I started and I couldn't quit. <laughs> it was, it's an addiction. So maybe that's why we're having this conference. It's a deliverance conference from all of those addicted to Skyline Chili. Who, I'm seriously honored to be here. I haven't been to Cincinnati since I was a child. Uh, my dad went to a, a college here called God's Bible School back in the 50s, 40s and 50s. Anybody, does that ring a bell with anybody? Anybody know what that is? Really? It's a real thing. Uh-huh. Is it still around? Amazing. So I'm looking forward to going and hanging out uh, a little bit, seeing, seeing some places that were really important to my father back in the day. And, um, Really quick, there's, a, there's, some, uh, <clears throat> there's some resources out in the back, and I want to mention just a couple of them to you, and, uh, because I didn't bring any signs. My, my admin's on vacation, my wife's family's in town, so I'm traveling alone, which means I have no idea what I'm doing when it comes to this stuff. <laughs> if Tracy was here, she'd be like, oh, Bill. Um, there's a couple of things. One is a story about my dad. It's called The Miraculous Journey of Henry Vanderbush. My dad is one of the most supernaturally dynamic people I have ever met in my life. And uh, my mom, when dad got filled with the Holy Spirit, my mom took meticulous, detailed diary notes of the crazy things that God was doing. My dad was of the school of thought that being filled with the Holy Spirit was not a real thing. That shut down. It was a total cessationist. He was a Wesleyan Methodist, loved the Lord, preached the gospel, but didn't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit and, until the Holy Spirit got a hold of him. And that was the end of that. So... <laughs> Uh, anyway, he, he saw so many miracles, just the story of an ordinary man who stepped into an extraordinary existence, and so that's back there. Uh, a year, year and a half ago, I uh, wrote a book with a New York Times bestselling author named Ted Decker. It's called The Forgotten Way. It's a 21-day devotional journey that will absolutely upend the way that you do life. I only have a few of these back there because I didn't want to check on a bag, so I just brought what I could in my carry-on. I'm telling you, if my wife was here, she'd be just shaking her head like, you got to be kidding, Bill. Um, there's a DVD back there called The Origin of Human Trafficking. And by the way, if you travel with these in your bag, it gets the attention of TSA. Found that out the hard way. Um, <laughs> this is a DVD I did with George and Banoff, and basically we're talking about the, the spiritual origin to the physical reality of human trafficking. Romans 6 says that you and I have been trafficked by sin. Did you know that? It's the word trafico is the word in the Greek. You and I have been actually sold as slaves by sin, the slave master. And so when we begin to deal with the issue of sin consciousness, then we begin to deal with the origin of the human trafficking problem. The deal with human trafficking is we want to reach the heart of the trafficker. That's how we shut it down. And that's the way that we do it. And um, their problem is a lot of times our problem in the church as well. So those are back there. Two most important things that are back there that uh, you're going to want to prioritize. This little flat white card is a USB thumb drive. Kind of a cool new technology. But um, you can plug it into your computer and it's 24 hours of teaching on identity. It's called Project 24. 
And, uh, and one, of my, one of my ministry team people says to me one day, hey, did you know you have an entire day's worth of teaching on identity? I said, no, I don't. This has been your life message for the last decade or more. And I uh, began to realize, yeah, actually I do. I have way more than a day. So they grabbed a hold of the top 24 hours, 24 hours of teaching on identity. Today, in our church in Austin, we, we started talking about this one theme about five years ago. I live in Florida now, but I was pastoring in Austin about five years before that. We started talking about this theme, that you are one with God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he did that. We decided to take and make that the theme of every service that we did. From a million different angles, we preached it. And over the last five and a half years, still to this day, there hasn't been a divorce in that church. In the church's 35-plus year history, unprecedented. And uh, sin issues started falling off of people. We realized when we dealt with that, it was, a, it was a huge, huge breakthrough. So that's back there. And then this is what we're going to be talking about over the next couple of days. And uh, it's in this little brown box. And in here, there is a red USB thumb drive. And this is called the Power and Presence series. We're going to be talking about spiritual warfare. But not in the way that, I, I don't like this topic. Okay, let me just be honest with you. I don't like this topic at all. It's not fun for me to teach this topic, so I had to make it fun, and I decided to call it spiritual joyfare, because joyfare is way more fun than warfare. It takes a whole lot less work, and you get a whole lot more done. So uh, that's back there, and that's 12 hours of teaching on the topic of spiritual joyfare, angels, prophetic ministry unlike anything you've ever ever seen so uh, anyway we're going to do some stuff with that tonight and uh, everything I'm going to talk about tonight is elaborated on in that 12-hour series including all of the notes I won't have time to even scratch the surface of the notes but those notes will be available on that thumb drive so I do bring greetings to you from my wife uh, Tracy met her when I was five years old it's true she was my next door neighbor we got married a short time after that because, <laughs> because it's Texas. And uh, we were very, very young. We were going on 26 years of marriage this year. We were very young when we got married. People say, how young were you? I say, we were so young when the minister said, you may kiss the bride. I was like, gross. <laughs> Not a true story. Uh, so now we got two kids. Got married at 18 and 19, actually. So uh, 26 years of marriage this year. We got two kids, and they uh, both live in Orlando, which is why we left Austin after 20-some years of pastoring there to move to Orlando, Florida, to be closer to our children. And the uh, travel schedule had gotten to the point where I could just do this full-time, and that was, that was a blessing, but I just wanted to be close to the kids, and Tracy did as well. We were those kind of parents. And, and so uh, uh, they both work at Disney World which I always tell people is a halfway answer to prayer because I always prayed, God, let our kids be servants in the kingdom. (laughs) Be real specific when you're praying for your kids, all right? Because God's got a funny sense of humor about that. When we pulled into town, we realized in Celebration, Florida, the town we live in, about 7,000 people, there was only four churches in town. And if I would have put them in order of churches that I would attend, the one that would be on the very, very bottom would have been Celebration Community Presbyterian Church. Most traditional looking building in town, big old gothic building with a bell that rings out across the community every hour on the hour. I thought Presbyterian just speaks of like 
dead. I don't want anything to do with that. Let me find some live, cool, hip, happening church that looks like a Panera bread. And um, <laughs> so, uh, so I uh, uh, ran into the pastor one day of the Presbyterian church. He'd been seeking the Holy Spirit for 20 years. It's doctorate in theology from Princeton Theological Seminary. And one day, not too long ago, in his car, the Holy Spirit crashed into his car in such a powerful way that he started doing the thing he didn't think he could do and speaking in tongues, and he couldn't quit for over an hour. So uh, our friendship just blew up, and he said, come and work with me. And after six months of saying no, I finally said yes. So I'm now a teaching pastor at the Celebration Community Presbyterian Church. Is that weird? <laughs> and we, uh, we give, now we give invitations every week for people to receive Christ, be filled with the Holy Spirit. We pray for the sick. We see them getting healed. This past Sunday in service two and three combined, we had 110 people receive Christ. It's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. It never, it's, it's like, what are you, Presbyterians getting saved. It's great fun. So, so that's what we do. So uh, I feel like I know a little bit about deliverance ministry after pastoring in a Presbyterian church. <laughs> I'm getting delivered of uh, a religious idea that dead churches are actually dead churches. You find more life in some of these dead churches than you think. God's hiding revival in the midst of some of the deadest environments on earth. Yes. And, uh, and, and I, I think there's, there's no accident to that. Awesome. How many of you have never heard me teach anything before? Never. Wow, we got a lot of ground to cover. <laughs> All right, well, anybody taking notes tonight? Get your device out, get your phone out, your Bible, whatever you're going to write with and write on. I'm going to give you, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to try to outteach your ability to take notes. And uh, we'll see how we do. To lay a foundation of getting into what we're going to talk about tonight in uh, spiritual joy fair and deliverance, I want to talk just a smidge on identity. It's really an important thing because uh, this is what the devil attacks so often. <clears throat> when God created everything in Genesis 1, he begins the creation process by creating a dead environment, totally dead, lifeless, without form and void. And he speaks to the substance of the environments that he's created in order to produce life. He speaks to it like, like this. When he wants to create fish, he talks to the water. And he says this phrase, let the sea bring forth. And everything that's meant to live, exist, and thrive in that environment comes forth, starts swimming around. When he wants to make plants and animals, he speaks to the earth. He says, let the earth bring forth. And everything that's meant to live, exist, and thrive in that environment comes to life. The exception to all of it is when he makes man. When he makes man, you see this phrase, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Now, who's he talking to there? Well, we know he's not talking to angels because you're not made in the image and likeness of an angel. So what you have is Father, Spirit, and Son having an internal dialogue. 
an other-centered relationship of love, self-giving relationship of love, God, in the very core of his nature, has an internal conversation that goes like this. Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. So, the environment that God spoke to to create man was the environment of himself. Just as fish live and move and have their being in water and plants and animals live and move and have their being on land, you and I live and move and have our being in him. God bends down and takes the dust of this earth. He does this amazing thing. He creates a convergence point between heaven and earth and man. He creates from the dust of the earth. and goes like this, from just, just dirt, takes his spirit, the most valuable treasure in all of the universe, the most powerful force in all of the universe, and goes, and this ball of mud becomes animated to become a living soul, created to have communion with God, face-to-face communion with God, unhindered, unbroken, face-to-face communion with God, literally carrying the very DNA of God. That doesn't make man God. Man is not God, and God is not man. But he created man to be the home for his presence. A literal mansion that God has chosen to to bear his presence and carry his glory. So one day, Adam and Eve are hanging out in the garden. The serpent comes up to Eve and says to Eve, and this is a fascinating story to me. Not so much that the serpent talked to Eve, but that she talked back. I think that's interesting. It's kind of like they just have a chat, you know? And he says, hey, listen, you can be like God if you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Now, it's often said that the very first sin was that man wanted to be like God. No, it's not. Read it closely. The very first sin was to believe the lie that we were not. Why? Because she was already made in the image and likeness of God. And what the serpent does is he says this. You can be like God. Wait a minute, she already was. But in suggesting it, it plants a seed of doubt in her heart as if God is withholding something from her that she really needs. Well, I want that. Yes, how do I get it? Do the very thing God told you not to do, eat of this tree. And it's, it's simple as this. He gave her a work to try to get what she already had. The tactic then becomes the exact same tactic now. And that is, to this day, one of the biggest lies that brings us under demonic influence is that the devil tries to get you to obtain through works what you already possess by grace. It's the first lie. In the process of believing this lie, Adam and Eve suddenly introduce the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil into their awareness. Understand that eating the fruit of the tree didn't produce evil. It only caused us to become aware of something that you and I were never actually meant to even be aware of or be threatened by. Darkness is not to be a threat to you. When we talk about deliverance, people get all spooky about it. It's really not that spooky. Darkness is not to be a threat to you. Why? Because Jesus said, you're the light of the world. 
I don't know if you've ever seen the interaction between light and darkness. It's really fascinating. There is never a contest. Immediately, when light comes on, darkness goes. It's a darkness repellent, we could call it that, all right? The only time darkness can ever threaten you is when you have forgotten that you are the light of the world. Immediately, when they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they turn to each other and themselves and, and something immediately happens. Judgment, preference, guilt, shame are the result. All of a the sudden, they have a judgment. They judge themselves. Wait a minute, we're not wearing any clothing. What a cruel trick God has played on us. They look at each other. It's your fault. No, it's your fault. And now they, they run off to sew fig leaves together and clothe themselves, and the fashion industry is born. There we have it. And God comes to them in the garden and he makes an astonishing conversational tone happen here. And that is he begins to ask Adam some questions. The first question he asks is, hey, Adam, where are you? Which is fascinating because, listen, when God can't find you, you know you're lost, okay? (laughs) That's lost right there. But God knows exactly what he's asking. What is he saying? Very first question God asks, man, where are you? You remember the question that Jesus asked the disciples? It's the same question we all ask, most of the time unconsciously or subconsciously. The question he asked the disciples went like this. Who do you say that I am? Who do men say that I am? He wasn't asking that because he's trying to figure out his identity. But when we ask it, that's exactly what we're trying to figure out. And the way we ask it is by watching how everybody around us interacts with us. What does everybody else think of me? What does everybody else, how, how do people see me? Who does my boss say that I am? My parents say that I am. My spouse say that I am. My kids say, who do these people in my life that I consider to have influence and importance, who do they say that I am? And based upon the answer to that question, we oftentimes believe that's who we really are and that's how we find our identity. And in this moment, God says to Adam, where are you? Because Adam, man, is supposed to be found in God. He's supposed to carry and bear the spirit, the glory of God. And Adam has now just lost a revelation of himself. Now he fears God and he hides. The next question that, that God asks is, who told you you were naked? Nobody ever, asked, nobody ever preaches on this on Sunday morning because it has the word naked in it. Who told you you were naked? All right? The word naked is a fascinating word. It means lacking And it's a kind of lack that requires me to do something about in order to fill up what I'm lacking. Like nobody's responsible for this lack but me. So when God says to man, who told you you were naked? The question is this, who convinced you you were lacking in anything? The God is El Shaddai, all all sufficient one. David says in Psalm 23, the Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. In other words, in the presence of the shepherd, the good shepherd, I, I lack for nothing. Paul, in prison, chains on his wrist, says, hey, I've discovered the secret of being content. (laughs) I got this thing figured out. I can do all the things through Christ who strengthens me. Why? Because he found himself in Christ. So we have this amazing story that unfolds about how we went wrong, how everything just kind of fell apart for mankind. Now, it's often said, I'm going to jump all the way into the New Testament here, It's often said that, well, Adam was made in the image and likeness of God. 
Theological students and Bible scholars will have this argument endlessly. Adam was made in the image and likeness of God, but we are made in the image and likeness of Adam, which is why we bear the fruit of the fall. And you can make a case for that up until the cross. But Colossians 3 says this, put off the old man, that dead man, that confused blind man who doesn't know who God is, who's convoluted in his thinking about the nature of God so he can't know himself because without a revelation of him, you never know you. Colossians 3 says, put off that old man and put on the new man. And this is the phrase that's used. That's made in the image and likeness of the one who created him. So here's the beauty of the thing. We just talked about the fall, but let me tell you about the restoration. And that is that God in Christ restored us completely, reconciled us. It's a mathematical term that brings us back into right standing with God. How did he do that? Colossians, uh, uh, second, excuse me, Second Corinthians 5 says that God in Christ reconciled us to himself. And the way he did it was like this, by not counting your trespasses against you. It wasn't that he looked all over to find somebody who wasn't committing any trespasses and he grabbed the ones that were good in their own effort and then saved them. No, he took a look at mankind and decides he's not going to put your trespasses in your account. It's not a denial that they exist. It's that God is not choosing to allow your sin to influence his opinion of who you are. Should I say that again? God has determined to not allow your sin to have the power to influence his opinion of who you are. Why? Because he told Jeremiah this phrase, I knew you before I formed you. Now think about that. I knew you before I formed you. Which means something about you could be known before you even knew you could be known. It speaks to our origin. It means that you began in the mind, the heart of God. You began in God. How long has God been around? A little while. He's eternal. There's an eternal element to who you are. That's how the Bible says God has put eternity in the heart of man. It's like in the heart of man is this eternal element. You ever met somebody, a believer, a fellow Christian or something, you walk up to him, you meet him. I met, the, I met Van today and I was like, my goodness, I feel like I've known this guy my whole life. It's because we have. We've known each other longer than we know we've known each other. Which is why now that we've met and we have the revelation that we know each other, we will never again not know each other. But we've known each other a lot longer than we knew. <laughs> That's how it works. It gets even crazier than that because the Bible actually tells us that we are one. Do you know that? It's not a new age terminology, it's a Jesus terminology. Jesus says in John 17, Father, the glory that you've given to me, I give to them that they may be one, just like we are one. In other words, that their unity, other-centered, self-giving relationship of love producing this amazing union would look exactly like us. That we would actually reflect the nature, the character of God, so that this world would never for a moment be confused about who he is and what he is like. That's why love is such a powerful message. The phrase goes like this. Father, the glory you've given to me, I give to them that they may be one, just like we are one. I in you, and you in me, and I in them. Perfected in unity. Listen to this phrase. 
John 17, that the world may know that you sent me. See, the world is confused about who they are because we still don't know who we are. And the reason we don't know who we are is we're not 100% convinced about who he is. So here's the train of thought. When you get convinced about who he is and that he's absolutely good and that he is absolutely loved and he's not counting your sins against you, listen, what's the thing that could separate you from God? Sin. What if he doesn't count your sins against you? Then the only thing sin can do is separate you from God in your own mind, but not in his. See, sin has the power to change your mind about God, but it's not going to change his mind about you. Some of you are already getting free in here tonight. You're like, wow, that feels really good. That sounds too good to be true. It's true. What if I believed that? Wouldn't I just go out and like sin like crazy? Only if you don't know who you are, but if you know the powerlessness of sin and the power of righteousness, you would absolutely be so unimaginably enamored with this extravagant one that sin would lose its ability to have a hook in your heart. I know, it's so good. I do. I really. I know. I, I, I'm just going to take this this massive silence that everybody's just thinking. That's cool. In Texas, everybody's very loud. Right? They don't hear anything you say because they're too busy talking. <laughs> they say "Amen" in Texas in weird ways. They, you know, not just a "Amen" or "Come on." Or they'll say things like, "You're cooking with gas now." In Ireland, they say, you're burning diesel, brother, in an Irish accent. I, one time I was in a meeting in the South, and this guy, I said something, maybe, I don't know, kind of ding the devil a little bit, and this guy goes, shooting that brush pile again, Bill, I know he's in there because I can hear him growling. I'm thinking, I'm going to write a book on creative ways to say amen. Nobody's ever done that before. (sighs) All right. So now we've laid this foundation. Let's talk a little bit about why we're going to deal with this thing of deliverance and demonic influence. First off, as I travel around the United States, I've I've become really well aware that, that we have an identity crisis. The identity crisis, I think, has, it's not so much philosophical in nature. I think it's demonically influenced. I've become aware of this because I've talked to so many people over the last year and a half, two years, who uh, have gone to schools of ministry. Schools of supernatural ministry, really good ones too. But ones that are uh, led by people who are dear friends of mine that I love and, and, and honor and will endorse forever. Uh, schools like Bethel and IHOP and and uh, Iris in Mozambique, and you know, people that just are, are doing amazing, amazing things for God. Yet I've talked to students that have come out of really, really edgy environments, going after things in God, going after the supernatural. And I'm wondering why they don't have joy. And I don't say they as in across the board. I've just talked to way too many of them for it to just be a random occurrence. We've sent many, many out of Austin uh, from our own church and churches around Austin out to these various places and they come back, I often find as I sit down with them that, that there's a mindset that has crept in where here's, this is the convoluted, strange bizarreness of it. 
And that is they can tell you miracles that they can, they've, they've seen. They can tell you about moves of God that they actually have been a part of. Manifestations and amazing things that have happened. But then I begin to dig around a little bit about some of the thoughts that they're having, some of the things that they're reading, some of the stuff that they're studying. And pretty soon they come to this conclusion. And this is the phrase that I've heard so many times over the last year and a half and just boggling my mind. And they'll say this phrase, I just don't even know if I believe in God anymore. Well, how can you see miracles and not believe in God? We begin to start attributing, and this is where I know it's demonic, right? You start attributing, you start coming up with ways of figuring out how to take God out of the equation but leave the miraculous in. So now it's not God doing it, it's you. Or, 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 maybe, or maybe it's some space alien thing, or maybe it's some like sort of, sort of a new age mumbo jumbo where you have the power to actually, you know, you're a God unto yourself and you have the power to actually create the miraculous just by faith and belief and things like, things like, and I sit there and I listen to these people and they've gone from Jesus rooted supernatural Holy Spirit infused encounters with God to wanting to take the miraculous hold on to the power to be able to manifest the miraculous but push Jesus out of the way and even come to a place of, of almost practical atheism where they go, I don't even know if I believe in God anymore, but I still believe in miracles, but the miracles happen. Th- you see what I'm saying? Okay, so I feel like before this thing becomes like epidemic in proportion, we gotta head this thing off because I recognize demonic influence when I see it. So begin to ask the Holy Spirit, how in the world is this happening? And this is, this is what begins to come. We have three essential voices that we listen to. First off is the voice of God. That's awesome, right? Never fails, he's always, always speaking an encouraging word. And when he speaks, he releases realities over your life that launch you into your destiny. That's the awesome thing about hearing the voice of God. Then there's the voice of you. And the amazing thing about God is that he actually gives you permission to ignore his voice and say no to him. Isn't that fascinating? Really fascinating to me that the cross of Jesus Christ actually preserved your ability to rebel against the voice of God. Because love can only be experienced within the context of choice. And God's desire is to give you an encounter with love that transforms and changes you. Ultimately, his desire for you is to be conformed in the image of Christ. And the Bible says that you began a good work in you, will be faithful to bring it to a place of completion, total completion, right? So he's promised to do this work. So we're going through processing of this work, no doubt about it, yet the work is finished. For some of you, it doesn't feel finished. From God's vantage point, it is finished. We're just coming into agreement with what God already believes. And that agreement sometimes can take a while. So we have God's voice, which is great, God gave you a voice, and he wants communion with you. Your voice is awesome. But there's a third voice in play here, and it's the voice of the devil or the enemy or demonic influence. Now, people will often say, well, the devil is defeated. Yes, absolutely true. Well, the devil has no power anymore. Yes, that's true. Well, then how in the world can the devil do anything if he's defeated or disempowered? Here's the problem, is that we have taken the, the dynamic of a defeated devil and basically taken it to mean that the devil doesn't even exist anymore. If he's defeated and disempowered, then he's not even an issue. But think about how the devil got power in the first place. He spoke. He talked. And for whatever reason, God has left the devil with the ability to invite people into agreement. 
He's actually left him with the ability to speak. And in speech, he is called, by the way, the father of lies. So every time he speaks, he tells a lie. So if the devil walks up to you and says, hey, you got cancer, well, come on. Give a shout. That's good stuff. Why? Because he's telling a lie. He can't tell the truth. There's no truth in him. If the devil actually walks up to you and says, man, you are so healed and you're doing all right, that would be the time to like go get you know, Van to pray for you, lay hands on you, like cover you, right? He's a father of lies. He cannot speak, according to Jesus. He says he cannot speak, but speak a lie. There is no truth in him. That's the nature of what he's like. So the deal is he still has the ability to talk. He provides an alternative choice so that love can still be entered into, not through, through a coercive headlock, but basically by responding to a realization of how loved we already are. We love him because he first loved us. A revelation of how loved we are by him is what gives us access to, to respond with love to the one who has placed his DNA of love within us. So you and I can manifest being that convergent zone between heaven and earth, that place where heaven and earth meet once again so that this world is filled with the revelation knowledge of the glory of God. But the devil has a way of speaking in such a way as to invite you into agreement. And Adam and Eve lost their authority through agreeing with the wrong voice. Catch what I just said. They lost authority by agreeing with the wrong voice. How do you know you've lost authority? When you feel powerless. When you come to a place of complete powerlessness, you've lost something. People often ask this question. Can a Christian be demon-possessed? The difficulty with answering that question is in the definition of the word possession in English. The word possession in English means it's like like this. If I possess this, it's mine. I control it, I have access to it, and it can't do anything of itself. It is mine, right? But in the Bible, the word possession in both Greek and Hebrew never means ownership at all. It only means influence. So if we say, well, can a Christian be demon-possessed? Can you be owned by the devil? Can you be owned by demons? No, it's not even biblical. Can you be influenced by demons? Yes. And this is the deal. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian or how filled with the Spirit you are or how many miracles you got under your belt, you still have the opportunity to choose what influences you. Every single day, many times a day. And if the devil has any activity between now and and, and eternity, it's to somehow try to render you powerless through inviting you into agreement with ideas that open the doorway to demonic influence. That's what we're talking about this week, right? So a lot of times people say, well, are you talking about, are we going to do a deliverance ministry kind of a thing? Okay, let me just say something really quick about deliverance ministries. I'm not a huge, I've got a lot of friends who do deliverance, it's their thing, right? But I'm not a huge fan of deliverance ministries because of this. 
I feel like we preach the gospel first and foremost, and deliverance becomes a byproduct of just preaching the gospel. The thing with deliverance ministries is when you draw attention to the demonic, the demonic manifests. It's fascinating how that works. It's why when you go to ministries where deliverance is happening, you think, why are there so many demons manifesting in this room? It's almost like all the demons showed up at the service to get cast out. It's the most bizarre thing ever, right? It's the weirdest thing. It's like, serious, did every demon in the city come to this deliverance service to get cast out? I mean, honestly. And I've discovered this. A few things that demons love and a few things that demons hate. Demons love attention. Like a spoiled two-year-old that has absolutely no idea how to act in public. Which is why I think when Jesus showed up in some places and, and demons started manifesting, he quieted them down and wouldn't let them, wouldn't let them talk. I thought that was fascinating when I read that. I thought, I like that. The other thing, though, that I discovered is this. Demons hate joy. I mentioned at the beginning spiritual joy fair. In all of my years of ministry, and all my time in, in, in this thing, traveling all over the world and seeing demonic manifestations in all kinds of different countries, I have never yet seen a, a demon-possessed person who likes joy. Demons hate joy. And so do a lot of religious people. <laughs> Which is why whenever we gather as the body of Christ, just, just make yourself happy, okay? Just make joy a non-negotiable, absolute must when we gather together as the body of Christ. Just get happy because it makes it so much easier for us to tell you and the demon-possessed people apart. Tell you a story about that a little later. Anyway, all right. So for those of you who are taking notes, I want to give you some signs of demonic influence that I've seen manifesting in recent months. Uh, we talked about the first one. First one is a perception of lack. Any place in your life where you have, by the way, all of us have come into agreement with some level of demonic influence. It doesn't mean you're, you're lost. It doesn't mean that you're not saved. That's not what I'm talking about here. Remember, the Holy Spirit is trying to convince you of your righteousness. The devil is trying to convince you of your sinfulness. And that sinfulness creates a perception of distance and separation from God. And that's what creates a sense of powerlessness. And listen, if the devil can't steal your soul, the next best thing he can do is render you powerless so that you live a life basically of, of, of unfruitfulness. So the first thing is perception of lack. Any area in your life where you are perceiving some area of lack, I'm missing this, I need this, I've got to have this, I'm lacking in this area, is an area where you've come into agreement with a lie. That lie is not from God. That's an area of demonic influence. Some of you look at your checkbook and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm, I, I, I'm, I got I to do, we got to do something. We gotta do. But then you don't go to God. Remember the story I started out with at the beginning of the night? They looked at themselves, saw that they were naked, and suddenly felt responsibility to take care of all of those, those things themselves without any regard for God. In other, in other words, fearfully running away from God, trying to fix themselves up just in case God showed up. God is not embarrassed by your lack of, of finances. He owns everything. He can pay you off in planets. He's not embarrassed by the condition of your bank account. 
Listen, everything, everything that we go through in life is really to bring us to a complete and total and utter dependence upon God, no matter what. That's the deal. Everything is to bring us to this awareness that without you I am nothing, but wow, I'm not without you and I never will be again, which means I have everything. I am literally lacking in nothing. doesn't matter what my bank, bank account looks like. I'm lacking in nothing. The disciples want to, they, we need to pay our taxes, Jesus. Jesus goes, I go fishing. <laughs> he wasn't telling him not to work. He was just saying, look, the means by which I'm going to sustain you is going to blow your mind. It's going to be completely counter to what you've, you've ever thought was logically possible. Let's stop and think about this. Have you ever seen on the news where we have a huge problem in the world? Billions of birds starved to death today, unable to find food. No. My dad used to say, Bill, don't worry about it. Look how the birds all sing and they all have bills. It, <laughs> It was cute when I was, you know, in college. I'm like, Dad. It's true. Here's the thing. God will take care of every single sparrow on earth. And the Bible says, how much more is he going to take care of you? My friend Jim Baker says, nobody can take better care of you than Dad. I love that phrase. It's just, ah, when it comes down to it, I'm lacking nothing. Why? Because he's my dad. He's my father, the one who owns everything, knows everything, has everything. He he has invited me to be not just a servant, not just a friend, not even just a son, but a covenant bridal partner and even his body, which means I am lacking in nothing. Nothing. No lack. Perception of lack. All right. Persistent inner anguish. I see this a lot these days is people have lost joy in, in there's this persistent inner anguish. It's a sadness that doesn't go away. I see this a lot. A lack of focus, it's a big one. In other words, the inability to, the inability to perceive what God is saying and doing in any one moment. Um, there's a lot of things on this list. They're on that USB back there, but I'm gonna hit some of the the highlights. Um, Self-harming is a big one, huge one. Uh, I'm in a meeting recently, that's a couple of years ago, still recent to me. Uh, Seems like it was just yesterday. I'm up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and there's a young lady there, her name is Katie. And uh, I I don't know this at the time, but she's got over 150 scars on her body, most of them on her left wrist. And when she accepted Christ, started going to her youth group, young adults group, she went and paid a lot of money to get a really nice script of the word love tattooed all across her scars on her wrist. And I'm up talking a lot about identity and things that I've talked a little bit about tonight. But identity was the message of the night. And as I'm talking about value, I'm talking about how God sees you, how, how original sin is not the issue, original righteousness is the bigger power. It's, it's just the bigger force. And, and, and that's the thing that God wants to draw us awareness to and, and how God's never been disappointed in you a day in his life. 
How do we know that? Because he took all your shame and guilt. That's how we know that he left you in a position where you have no ability to be ashamed anymore because he took all of your shame. Which means God's never been disappointed in you. He's purposed in his heart to never hold your trespasses against you and love keeps no record of wrongs and love is who he is and what he's like. Well, if you have no record of wrongs and there's no trespasses against you, then how can God see you anything other than pure, righteous, perfect, and holy? That's the beauty of the redemptive work of the cross. Well, I'm talking about all this, and all of a sudden I hear this screaming in the back of the room. And uh, I don't know what's going on, but it's enough to, to shut the whole meeting to a standstill, and I just look in the back, and I say, what's happening back there? And this lady's girl starts waving her arms, and she comes up to the front. And as she comes up to the front, she's holding her wrists out like this. And she's saying, look, she's sobbing, and her youth group's all crying and whatever. And she looks, and I don't, I don't see anything but a, but a nice tattoo. And she goes, no, I, look, I used to have scars. It, and she watched. Well, I'm talking about value and worth and righteousness. And she looked and watched, and her youth group sat there and watched as her scars literally vanished, just as if they were being wiped off of her arm. And here's a crazy thing. It, they disappeared actually all over her body. God erased all of the scars and left the tattoo. So let that freak your theology out a little bit, right? <laughs> Somebody asked me, what do you think that means? I said, I don't know. I think God appreciates artwork. I don't know. I, didn't even, I don't know. Good art. I don't know. <clears throat> I've seen that replicated so many times over the last couple of years where in the middle of a meeting, a person's scar, where the lady had Crohn's disease, had a, a scar all the way across her body, so it was like a rope. And in the middle of the meetings, we're talking about value and worth and how God sees you. She just let that go as a, as a mark of her identity. And something happened. That's the way she put it. She says, I just realized I, this disease was not who I was. And the phrase was, she realized, hey, who is blind Bartimaeus after he gets healed? He's not blind Bartimaeus anymore. He has a complete identity change. Her whole life had been identified by this disease that she had carried. And when she finally just said, I let it go, I am who you say I am. And if you say I'm your daughter, if you say I'm healed, you say I'm pure, perfect, righteous, and holy, I just, I just rest to be that. And she said she feels this burning all the way across her stomach. And she and her sister go running to the bathroom. And she comes back and she hands me this note. And I share her testimony and bring her up in front. And that scar, totally gone as if it was never there. God's doing this kind of stuff as people just get freed up from lies they believed about themselves. That's not an issue of self-harming, but I'm just saying this, that you can't, you can't uh, uh, create any scars on your body that God can't heal. Or your heart. I just love that. Uh, mm, yeah, that's worth, yeah. Um, unexplainable illnesses or infirmities. This is a big one. People, uh, I've been asking people for years, how many diseases, percentage of these diseases do you think are demonic in nature? Now, I don't think that every disease is a demon, right? These physical bodies, we're going to shed this costume, get a glorified costume eventually. It's, it's going to work out to where, trust me, come on. You get to a point in your life and you're like, yes! I, you look in the mirror and you're like, that's awesome! And then you get to a point in your life where you're, you're remembering that it used to be at one time. You know, you wake up in the morning, you wonder how you hurt yourself in your sleep. You know? <laughs> There comes a point where you're going, yeah, you know, I, I, I wouldn't mind trading in for a, for a newer model. That'd be all right. It's good. Healing's awesome, but, uh, you know. 
So, but, but people say, well, so is every disease demonic in nature? No, I think in some cases physical things happen. These things just, these, these costumes break down. Jesus totally suffered under the weight of what was inflicted upon him within this world and by human beings, other human beings, flesh against flesh. But in the case of unexplainable infirmities and unexplainable sicknesses, I'm, I'm starting to realize I think more of those are demonic in nature than I ever, ever thought. Uh, just actually in a, in a meeting uh, uh, recently up in the Northeast, and this lady comes to front, she has this condition, and the doctors thought it was fibromyalgia, but it's, it's chronic pain, she can't hardly sleep, she's gotten allergic to everything, and they, they've done all these tests on her, and they can't find out what's wrong with her. And uh, turns out, I said, listen, um, is there somebody in your life that you hate? And you like, like you really hate them. And she didn't even have to think twice. She pulled out a name right away. I said, I don't need to know a name, but why, why do you hate them? Well, it's my father. He did this such and such. And she like begins to detail all of this stuff. And I said, um, how badly do you want to keep this pain? She says, I want to get rid of it. I said, how badly do you want to keep this pain? I want to get rid of it. Three times, finally sobbing. So I want to get rid of it. I said, let your dad go. Why don't you forgive him? I can't do that. I, said, I know you want him to burn in hell. You got to let that go. What if God wants to save him? You got to be okay with that. It took just a few minutes and she just doubled over and just heaves. And, I mean, just this sobbing. There's no like, weirdness to it. It was just sobbing. And she finally just said, I forgive him, let it go. When she did, I said, how's your pain? And she starts moving around, totally gone. I'm beginning to realize a lot of things physically that can't be explained are often tied to heart issues that we haven't dealt with or refuse to deal with or we know we should deal with, but we just don't. Somewhere we open up a door to demonic influence and sometimes it manifests as a physical illness or infirmity that can't be explained. Addictions, this is a big one. We just lost um, <clears throat> my daughter's very first boyfriend she's ever had. Um, wonderful young man accepting Christ a couple of years ago. He was a former heroin addict. Lived in a community of artists down in Miami and we loved this young man like crazy. But listen, the power of addiction is a big, big deal. It's demonic influence in nature. And addiction is fueled by the influence of people around you that you actually care for. So it almost feels like if somebody's influencing you back into that addiction, that giving into it is, is a way that you respond to a person that you actually care for. Well, that was a case in this case. He was part of a community down in in Miami, and somebody came through with some really cheap heroin laced with fentanyl. It's a massive problem. I don't know if you've been watching the news about this lately, but it's huge. And he died. And 13 people in that community died in one night. Never even made the news. It's how big of an issue this is. They're even talking about how the numbers are staggering, the amount of people that are dying from this stuff. There was a time when, um, what I'm about to say, I'm going to go ahead and apologize in advance for, okay? But there was a time where a group of young people in the body of Christ tapped into getting so hammered on the joy of God that tons of, especially in our town, Austin, Texas at the time, by hammered, I mean 
they became intoxicated with the revelation of the love of God. And they came off the streets into our church in droves because Jesus was better than all the drugs they had ever had. And yet, and yet, when they got up in front of every, and some of these kids paid a price for the joy they were experiencing. And they're flopping around, and they're, I mean, they're staggering. All, you say, well, how much of that is flesh? Listen, I'll take live flesh over something that addiction has had the power to kill. We gotta get better than heroin, you guys. We gotta do better than heroin. I'm just saying. I would love for, for Ryan, my daughter's boyfriend, I would love to see him just not even able to, staggering around crazy, like a crazy happy man in the front of a church alive today as opposed to what happened to him. And I'm telling you, we got somewhere along the line, we tapped into something I believe would have stemmed the tide of what has become a heroin epidemic in this country. But because we got offended by the manifestations that look so crazy and so goofy, we didn't realize the price that some of these kids paid for a joy that, that, that was so overwhelming and intoxicating that people thought that they were nuts, Acts 2 level nuts. And we shut it down and said, no, you, you got it, you get, knock that off. And now we've got a heroin epidemic. And I'm just telling you, we got a demonic influence that found a stronghold in the hearts and minds of people, and we gotta do better than heroin. We just, we just gotta introduce some of these addicts to the most high. That's the deal. You just got to. I, I, and, and listen, I'll, just, I'll be the first one to tell you, I was kinda out there going, look, listen, you don't need to be acting like that, but you can still be happy on the inside. I wish I could go back and suck all those words in at every one of those happy young people that I ever said that to. My thing is this, give me, a, give me an army full, a massive crowd full of drunk millennials than dead millennials any day. Amen. Any day. <laughs> Next time you see some mohawked, tattooed kid up here just, just going at it because he's got the joy of the Lord all over his life and somebody gets offended, just turn to him and go, look, he's alive. All right? <laughs> if he wasn't up there getting high, he'd be out there getting high and dying probably. This will kill you in the best way possible. It'll kill your flesh. It'll kill your fear of man. We just got to do better than heroin. All right? Just, I'm just going to leave that out there. <clears throat> uh, anything that draws you away from intimacy with Jesus. You ever been in a position in your life where you had an intimacy with Christ and now it's gone? You can't find that place of intimacy anymore? How about this? This is one. When questions arise, there's two kinds of questions out there. This, this is common. This one's common to everybody. Questions arise that are critical in nature and the criticism of the question arises when you begin to ask questions out of challenge as opposed to curiosity. Two kinds of questions I know we all get as ministers is questions of challenge and questions of curiosity. Both questions carry completely different, it's like a different spirit behind each one. 
The questions of curiosity are questions of going, I genuinely don't know, and I want to know. And if you'll tell me, if you'll reveal this to me, then I can move past this and grow. Because the point of those kind of questions is somebody wants to move on with God. But questions of challenge are people who are saying, I've gone as far as I can go, I'm not going any farther. And I'm going to get offended by anything that goes past this. And so it becomes challenging. It's entrenched in an unbelief. It's entrenched in this critical, unbelieving spirit. Two kinds of questions. Questions aren't bad. It's just the spirit behind it. And a lot of times, listen, you, you, know, you know when you've you got that challenging thing going on. I think a lot of times demonic activity thrives in the context, and here's a big one. When you've, when you've been easily offended, you've been offended by God because maybe there's been an accident or, or a tragedy in your family. And in those moments, you're massively vulnerable to, to a, a voice of demonic influence that can start to stir up questions of challenge in you against everything going on around you. It's a big one. Anything that actually uh, stirs up offense in us starts to get a, a, an open doorway into having some level of demonic influence take root in your heart. That's a big one. Okay, so there's a lot of things like that. Confusion is a massive list, things that I've just observed over the last year. Um, what about demons? Let's just talk real quick about the nature of demons. Demons actually, according to Matthew 12, 43, they have a will. It says, when an unclean spirit comes out of a man, it passes through dry places seeking rest and doesn't find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. So they actually have the ability to choose, to make choices. Uh, the second thing about demons, they can feel. Do you know that demons actually have emotions? James chapter 2, verse 19 says, you believe that God is one and you do well. The demons also believe, their response to the, that belief is that they tremble. So they actually can feel. Demons have knowledge, Mark 1, 23 and 24. There was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out saying, what business do we have with each other? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Uh, Mark chapter five and verse nine tells us demons are self-aware. Uh, he asks him saying, what is your name? He says, my name is Legion, for we are many. They'll often identify themselves with names such as anger, hate, envy, jealousy, fear. Next, demons have a searing effect upon the conscience. This is one of the, the, the understandings that I've, I've come to an awareness of. When a person has given over to some area of demonic influence, you get this searing effect on the conscience. 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. It says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by which the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with the branding iron. And of course, we know that they have the ability to talk. They seduce, James 1.14. They lie, 1 Timothy 4.1 and 2. They arrest your attention, anything that draws your attention away from an awareness of Christ and into what I call compulsive behavior, Romans 8, 15, Luke 8, 29. And they bring about torment and oppression through fear, intimidation, and condemnation. Now, let me just shift to the positive here. Intimidation is the biggest tactic of the devil. Intimidation. This is how we know that the devil is on a budget. 
Militarily speaking, intimidation is a low-budget resource. Intimidation is, listen, if I, if I can hurt you and I want to hurt you, then I really hurt you. If I can't, what's the next best thing I can do? Make you think I can. And that's what the devil does. It's like, it's like pointing an empty gun at you and you're cowering in fear. But it's not even a gun. It's just a finger. It's just, it's just not even a thing. It is nothing. It's nothing. It's a lie. It's, it possesses nothing. He owns nothing. It's just... My dad used to have this thing where he, <clears throat> I'll tell you, tell you about my dad. And, and this is how I learned about casting out demons. I said, dad, how did you learn how to do this like so well? He said, well, he said, when I got filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, he says, you were, you were about you know, three years old or so, not even quite three. He said, we started uh, uh, feeling the presence of the Holy Spirit come upon us. And he said, and he said, I really wasn't fully into it, but I knew that demons were real. I knew the Holy Spirit was there to empower us to cast demons out. He said, so, uh, but I thought, he said, I thought it was a big deal. And I thought it would take a whole lot of time. And he said, there was this one meeting where we had all these people up in the front. And he says, when you were little, he says, you used to walk behind me and you would just mimic everything I do. I don't remember this, of course, but this is the way my mom tells the story. She says, you would walk behind me and just do everything I would do. And, uh, and he goes, and as I would go along, you would just listen to the sounds I was making and you would say the exact same sounds and just do what I was doing. He said, so you learned to pray for people phonetically before you even knew the words. And he says, so I'm in this meeting one time and he says, and I go along and he says, there's this lady in front of me and she's got, she's clearly got critters on board, right? And so he, he says, I thought, I thought I'm, gonna, I'm gonna pass by her I'm going to go on to everybody else. I'm going to come back because this is going to take extra time. He said, but I didn't pay any attention to the fact that you were just sort of toddling along behind me. And he says, and you just went up to her and you just grabbed her by the shirt, laid a hand on her and said, Satan, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. <laughs> and the lady goes, wah, and totally gets freed, right? <laughs> he says, so he goes, I turn and I look and I go, Suddenly he says, I feel God say to me, yeah, you know, that little kid just cast the devil out of this woman. Like, you never have to be afraid of the devil, right? You just tell him to go, and he goes. From that point on, it was that easy. Dad just walked with that level of confidence. There was no contest about it. I remember one time, we're in this meeting, and this lady is up front, and she's manifesting some, it wasn't a joy manifestation, it was a demonic manifestation. She's flopping and yelling and roaring and carrying on. And so a dad goes up to her, and he just commands it to go, and she just keeps on going. And next thing I know, dad bends down on the floor. He's down on his hands and knees, and he gets right by her ear, and he just whispers something in her ear. And she very calmly gets up off the floor, just as calm as could be, and he pats her on the back and sends her back to her seat. And everybody applauds. Woo, she got delivered. And I was, I was like 14 at the time, and I was stunned. I thought, that's amazing. So after this meeting, at the meeting, I walked up to my dad and I said, Dad, what amazing phrase did you, what did you say to this woman that caused her to like get delivered just from a whisper? And he says, oh, I told her get up off this floor and behave yourself. You don't get off this floor, go back to your seat right now. I'm going to kick you so hard, you'll wish you had a demon. <laughs> now, <clears throat> <laughs> you, 
You got, you, got under, you got to understand my dad, all right? He was part of a different era. He wouldn't have understood like, he wouldn't have understood like, like iPhones or Facebook or lower back tattoos or any of that stuff. He would have been like, he wouldn't understand. He'd look at tattoos and he'd be like, why, Bill? Why, don't they understand? Why would she put a butterfly on her? Don't you understand that a butterfly on your back when you're 20 is a buzzard in your crack when you're 80? my dad so you know so I don't go around threatening to kick people all right but I said why did you say that to her oh he said I just need to say something to cut through the noise and get her to get her to come to her senses and behave herself I said you mean she didn't have a demon he said no of course she didn't have a demon I said how did you know he said because I told it to go and it didn't He says, you can cast a demon out of a person all day long, but you can't cast a person out of a person. (laughs) And some people are just weird. I got like 17 pages of notes and I'm through like three of them. So yeah, I know we got, okay. Here's the solution. We're going to jump down here. Here's the solution. Matthew chapter 10. It's one of the big four. As you go, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Understand this, that when Matthew 10, when Jesus is talking to these guys, Matthew 10 is happening here, the disciples don't even know who Jesus fully is. Luke 9, 1 and Matthew 10, 1, Jesus gives power and authority to a group of people who don't even really know who he is. This isn't rocket science. You don't need to go into like crazy amounts of prayer and fasting to somehow earn the ability to cast out demons. Even unbelievers could do this. Unbelievers. Every single one of the disciples at that point wasn't 100% sure as to who Jesus was. But they still get that mandate. In Isaiah chapter 14, and we get actually a, to see the devil for real, we'll say, hey, is this the one that made the nations tremble? Like, are you kidding me? It's, we had entire conferences on how to cast that out? Are you, are you, you're really? I spent so much money on CDs and DVDs and conferences to learn how to deal with that? That's what we'll say. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. And one of my favorite stories in Luke chapter 8, verse 26, Jesus goes into the, the tombs. You guys remember this? I think this story teaches so much about dealing with demons. The man of the Gadarenes, naked guy in the tombs, comes at Jesus, and first thing he does is he drops down and he worships, right? Which is fascinating, because you've got to assume that a legion of demons in this guy would be like a couple of thousand. So let me ask you this. You've got 2,000 demons inside of a man... And this guy wasn't kept from worshiping Jesus by these demons. What keeps the body of Christ from worship? You can't blame the devil. If 2,000 demons and a naked man in a cemetery couldn't keep this guy from worshiping Jesus, the church can never blame the devil for our lack of worship. All right? It's just the way that is. This naked guy in the tombs has an encounter with Jesus, and Jesus decides to have a conversation with the demons. The demons asked Jesus, 
please don't send us into the abyss. Now, I looked up the word abyss. It's a fascinating word. It means a place from which you cannot return, right? Please don't send us somewhere where we can't come back from. And Jesus, this is astonishing to me. One of these days, I'm gonna get clarity on this. Jesus goes, where do you wanna go? Send us into the pigs. Fine, go ahead. Pigs all run down the cliff and into the sea, deviled ham. You saw it coming. Tell me you saw it coming, right? So <laughs> you ask the question, what are Jews doing raising pigs anyway? So, all right, so that's under the law, right? So there's that. But here's the other part of it. Jesus apparently leaves the demons in play. I mean, apparently he has the power to cast them to a place where they cannot return. And they say, don't cast us there. Send us someplace where we still have the ability to. And my thing is this. I would like them all to go to the abyss right now. Let's just send them all there. That's where I want them to go. Why does Jesus leave the demons in play? I don't have any other answer except just asking the Holy Spirit. I just feel the smile of God saying, you see how much confidence I have in what I placed in you. You see how little of a threat these things need to be. And that is that Jesus can totally leave these demons in play. Uh, existing to go and torment something else another day. Why? Because he's got that much confidence in what he's about to release upon us in the cross and in the power of the Holy Spirit. You've been given every, every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. You've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness. You've been given the Holy Spirit without measure. You're lacking in nothing when it comes to dealing with the demonic. I'll tell you this story and then we'll, we'll finish up tomorrow night. There's a young man in our town, his name's Will. He's strangest character. Um, about as skinny as a toothpick because uh, he's just so brilliant. He studies so much and forgets to eat. And uh, speaks 12 languages fluently. Now teaches at the University of Texas in Austin. Does what only a handful of people on earth can do. And they fly him all over the world to to study cuneiform and hieroglyphics and wild stuff. Smart guy. Matter of fact, one day they put him into an MRI machine, CAT scan machine. You might have seen this study uh, go around the internet. This is my friend Will. And in there he had to like speak this phrase, these phrases in these 12 languages to see if different languages showed up on the language center of the brain. And in the middle of it, he stuck praying in tongues. And when he got out of the machine, they said uh, all of the languages were exactly the same, except for the, this one. And in this one, your entire language center shut down like it wasn't even active. So your spe- whatever that was, it was coming from somewhere else. Isn't that cool? Well, before this, Will's a young man. He'd been in my youth group for years, and, and, um, and so uh, Will... Uh, um, was part of our deliverance ministry team at, at, at this church in Austin. And, uh, and so, so this was back in the day where we really felt like in order to deal with demons, you gotta get serious. It's serious business to deal with the demonic. And so we got serious about it. <clears throat> and we matched volume for volume. You know, if they got loud, we get louder. You know, it'd take five people to hold one little person down. I mean, it's crazy stuff, you know. And so uh, and it'd take hours. And so one day, Will, being on the deliverance ministry team, he gets a call. We've got a guy up at the church, and he needs deliverance, and it's bad. It's really bad. He's 
breaking furniture and all kinds of stuff's going on. So Will gets up to the church, and uh, when he gets in there, this guy is just a mess. He's a writhing, foaming mess on the floor. But he has to be somewhere. Will goes, I heard the Holy, he calls me right after this. He says, Bill, I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, you want to get this done in a hurry? And Will says, yeah, I do. And he said, and this is what I heard the Holy Spirit say. Laugh over this man. Laugh over this man. So I said, Will, what did you do? He says, well, I just got down by his belly. And he said, and I just put my face in his belly and went, ha, 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 That's actually how Will laughs. And I said, I said, uh, I said, what happened? He said, oh, he got mad. He got really mad, very angry. I said, what'd you do? He said, I just kept, oh. And he said, and all of a sudden, the guy just arches back and goes limp, and he's totally free. Doesn't remember what happened, how he got there, what, what, what. I said, wow, Will, that's amazing. How long did that take? He said, about a minute. That's why we call this spiritual joy fair. Joy is one of the most powerful forms of prayer there is. In the presence of the Lord is fullness of. The joy of the Lord is your. Come on. Do we, do we need any more proof texts on how powerful this thing of joy is? People say, well, I want it to be real. Oh, my goodness. Come on. Give me fake joy over real depression any day. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I saw this guy on TV the other day and he gets up and, and this guy who had all these physical illnesses in his body and he says I laughed my way to health and they asked him how did you do it he says I get up every morning and he says I took 30 minutes to just laugh well, about what he says I realized you actually don't need anything to laugh about you can actually just do it it's true <laughs> And he said, and as he's talking, he's doing the interview. He's just as, just as happy as could be. And then he begins to list all the diseases that just left his body without any medication, purely because he says, now every day, 30 to 45 minutes every morning, I get to, get to hang out and laugh. And he says, and now I've gotten friends together, and we just get together to laugh for a good hour. We just, nothing but laughing. This is what we do. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm thinking, this guy, this guy is like launching the church of tomorrow, Something about that where people actually get together in, and, and, and purpose to release intentional joy in a way that breaks depression and darkness off of people. I mean, come on, aren't you absolutely just tired of the body of Christ dealing with the same level of depression as, as a world that has no answer? Because we've basically been told that this is the way it has to be. Come on, we ought to be the happiest people on earth. We ought to be so offensively joyful that we offend ourselves. You know what it's like to laugh with somebody? Just put your face in the mirror and start laughing at yourself. My wife thinks I'm nuts now in the morning when I look in the mirror and I'm just like, <laughs> whoa, more gray hairs on my chin and less hair on my head than yesterday. Woo! <laughs> but I can still fog a mirror, praise God. <laughs> oh my goodness. All right. Oh, so many things. Oh, 
You guys have got anywhere to be? It's a Thursday night. There's nothing happening in town tonight. <laughs> I normally don't teach this long. The Presbyterian Church, I get 24 minutes. I'm making up for all this lost time. <clears throat> Tracy and I are in San Francisco one time. This just happened last summer. We were in San Francisco. We're walking down Pier 39. And uh, we're just enjoying a day. It's finished up a conference. We're having a great time down there. And there's this lady that's walking around in front of us. And uh, she's got this she's really ratty hair. And she's got this old trench coat. And she's just stepping it off. A little short, short thing walking in front of us. And about 10 feet or so. And we kind of catch up to her. And, and all of a sudden, she turns around and looks at us and goes, I hate you. <laughs> the weirdest thing. And I turned around to see who she's talking to. And there's nobody behind me. I'm like, my goodness, what in the world is up with this woman? So she just kept on going. So looked at Tracy, and we just laughed about it. Just kind of kept on walking. Pretty soon, we catch up to her again. We get about 10 feet away from her. She turns around again and goes, I hate you. So at that point, we did what any couple filled with faith and power would do. We crossed the street <laughs> to get away from her because... Because I'm not Todd White, and and uh, <laughs> I don't know what's under that trench coat. I mean, come on, there's crazy people in the world. So, so uh, as we're across the street, God bless my wife. She's so compassionate and awesome. She goes, "Bill, we really need to minister to this woman." I'm like, what? "Minister to this? Are you kidding me? I need a rabies shot to go and witness to her." <laughs> We got to go let her know that she's loved, Bill. We got to let her, oh, okay, great, okay. Fine, fine, okay, what are we going to do? I don't know, but let's just, let's just go and let's just see what the Holy Spirit does. All right, fine. So we catch, we, we go, and we're opposite sides of the street, and we can see her. She's like this, and now we get ahead of her, and we get to a crosswalk, and we cross the street in front of her. Now she's coming at us, she's about 30 feet away. I got no plan. I literally have zero plan. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, can I just grab her in a big old bear hug, you know, and like a, like a human straight jacket while Tracy witnesses to her or something? What do I do? And I, 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 I'm coming up with nothing. And Tracy's standing next to me, and I'm watching this woman come walking straight toward us. And Tracy holds her hand up just like this, and just loud enough for me to hear it says, demons, go. When she said that, this woman disappears. <clears throat> Literally Vanishes. She's there, and then she's not there. And I'm watching. I'm watching her, and I didn't blink. She's there, and boom, gone. And I said, without taking my eyes off the spot, what'd you do? (laughs) Tracy goes, I just said demons go. I said, what did you see? She said, she vanished into thin air. I said, okay, so I'm not crazy. So... So we both walked over to where she, to see if like she, she fall in a manhole or something. Like, where'd she go? <laughs> She's totally gone. And there was nothing but just total peace there. And we started just talking about it. It's the Holy Spirit, what's going on here? What's happening? Because nobody else around seemed to notice that this woman just vanishes into thin air. air. And, and the Holy Spirit starts speaking to us and says, you ran into a, something that was territorial in nature. Or territorial Uh, demons that will decide to just camp out in a spot. 
You get the prince of Persia in the scripture. You get various, uh, various entities that just decide to just hang out in one spot because they're not omniscient. They're not omnipresent. They can only be in one place at a time. So it would stand to reason that they may be like just hanging out in one spot. And apparently we came into that spot. Why did they manifest as a person? Is that even legal? Well, angels manifest oftentimes as human forms. Why the Bible says, be careful how you treat strangers because sometimes you entertain angels without even realizing you're doing it. Well, the demonic do the same thing apparently. So that was my first uh, uh, um, experience with that. But this was the biggest takeaway and that is this, that we purpose to actually go releasing the love of Christ. And when you purpose to go in love, you are empowered with all of heaven behind you, all of heaven in you, all of heaven going before you, surrounding you, in, out, all around you. You You are tapping into heaven's greatest power source, which is the love of God. When you go releasing love, you are never more powerful than when you release love. Think of it like this, that it was compassion that told Jesus what the Father wanted to do, which is why you see Jesus looks around, he's moved with compassion, touches and heals. Jesus moved with compassion, does this and that. Compassion was the emotion by which heaven interacted with humanity, God in the flesh, God interacting with Jesus, Father interacting with Son, and as he is, so are we in this world. And so pay attention when you're going around just doing whatever you're doing. You're you're paying for your groceries, you're paying for your dinner, and you have this overwhelming sense of compassion, a supernatural compassion comes over you for somebody, and you have no apparent reason as to why you have this compassion. Begin to recognize the fingerprint of heaven upon that, and God's empowering you to release freedom over somebody's life in that moment. People say oftentimes, what about generational curses? Well, let's deal with this. I'll make it to page four in my notes. In Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse two, this is a big one in the body of Christ. A lot of times you think, well, I am what I am because of my parents or grandparents or it was passed down to me through some generational bloodline. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse two, this phrase goes like this. What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying the fathers have eaten sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge? As I live, declares the Lord, you are not going to use this proverb anymore. Behold, all souls are mine, the father and the son as well. Now, stop for a second. You have a phrase, God is, God is unveiling himself to humanity from the fall All the way to today, he is consistently unveiling himself to humanity better than we think he can be. Initially, you have the law introduced with this idea that the sins of the father will be carried on to the third and fourth generation. Sounds kind of harsh until you read the blessings will be carried on to the thousandth, right? So the blessings definitely outweigh the power of sin. But then you get to Ezekiel And you have this phrase that's come out of that mindset. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. So the idea is this, that okay, God has said it's going to be this way. The sins of the father are manifesting in the kids. And now God shows up and he says, why are you saying this? Well, because you said, I don't know, don't say this anymore. This is not not going to be true anymore. 
The fathers, think about the phrase. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children are suffering as a result of it. When Jesus was on the cross, everything he did carried significance. And there was a phrase that he says, cries out, I thirst. They took a sponge and filled it with what? Sour grapes. And held it up to his mouth. I'd like to suggest to you that when Jesus, that in that moment, on the cross, he took all of your generational curses on himself so that you and I can never look back through a bloodline and see something passed down to us in any area of darkness or sin or deceit or whatever and claim it as our own. Why? Because your bloodline comes from your father. Your father. Your father. That's what it means to receive the spirit of adoption. It's not just signing adoption papers. He's actually giving you a blood transfusion. He's infused you with himself. So as we finish this up tonight, listen, I've got, I want to bring you guys into a prayer, and we're going we're gonna to do this tonight. Um, let's, just, let's just do it like this. Uh, spiritual warfare teachings, I don't think, are ever meant to take priority over preaching the gospel. In Acts chapter 16, uh, Paul and Silas are ministering, and there's a girl that's walking behind him. She's filled with an unclean spirit. She has an unclean spirit she's speaking by. And, and it says, after many days, they turned and cast it out of her. They actually let her go for many days doing free marketing for them, right? But what ends up happening is it's not the point to cast out the demon. The point is actually to preach the gospel, and only when it got annoying did they turn and cast it out. Which is why I say, listen, don't don't make looking for demons a thing that you do, right? Just go and be the light of the world and watch as darkness scatters before you. Just be who you are and darkness cannot help but respond and scatter. That's the way it is. Pharaoh was taken out of the picture when Israel was delivered out of Egypt. Then they became, in that moment, their own worst enemy. By continuing to believe a lie about themselves, saying things like, there were giants in our sight and we're like grasshoppers. So when I think about stuff like this, I think of any teaching or movement that distracts from a fullness of revelation of what God believes about you really is a waste of time. Every presentation of the gospel ought to empower you with a revelation of what God believes about you. And in that place of empowerment, you and I now are fully equipped to confront darkness where you can actually step into where people have said is the darkest part of Cincinnati. And because you're the light of the world and you step into that realm, You walk in with all the power of heaven behind you and now that place that was formerly dark has now had a complete atmospheric shift. Why? Because when you have a greater value for the one in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory, then those in the room have value for the sin that they carry and cherish that that, that has empowered those lies. When you walk in that room and you have a greater value for what you're carrying than for what they carry, then what ends up happening is you shift the atmosphere in the room just because you stepped in. You engage the presence of darkness just by being the light of the world and stepping into it. When you know who you are, you never have to be afraid. Never have to be afraid. So listen, I've said a lot tonight and I've, I've, I've talked so much tonight 
if there's anything that I've said this evening that has identified a stronghold or a lie that you have believed about yourself or about God, perceptions of lack, any area of addiction, any area of confusion, any area where you've decided, I, I just, I've lost my joy, I've lost my peace, and my ability to love has grown cold. If that's you, that's who I'm talking to tonight. Do me a favor, all over this room, everybody stand. And if I've just talked to you, if I've just like, called you out and said, that's who you are, I'm going to have you come down to the front and just join me down here. Any area where you recognize a perception of lack, a lie that you've believed about yourself, a lie that you've believed about God. And the people that are still standing out there, we're not going to leave you just hanging, all right? Because we're one. We're going to demonstrate a unity tonight. So I'm going to have everybody come really, really, really close because we're going to have people pile in behind you, all right? Um, at this point, let me do this. Uh, Pastor Van, you had some ministry teams that, okay, if I can get them, if, if you were talked to this evening uh, about doing ministry, you were talked to and you know who you are, if I can get you to come up here on the stage and just line up here, that would be awesome. Come on up. Go ahead and just go right to the edge, all the way across the front. <clears throat> all right, now, everybody else that's, that's still standing out there, I'm going to have you come in behind them, and we're going to demonstrate unity tonight. There's no us or them. We're going we're gonna to all stand together as one in an act of freedom. I got a prayer I want to lead you all in tonight. <clears throat> Awesome, just close your eyes right where you are. Let me just pray really quick for you and then I'm gonna lead you guys in this prayer. Father, I just thank you for this time tonight. God, where I just see all over this room where you're lifting the veil off of those you have called the light of the world so that they'll shine brightly. So they'll shine brightly. All right. But with eyes open, looking up, and people that are standing up in front ministering, you might want to like stretch your hands out over them just because it looks cool. All right. <laughs> Ready? All right, here we go. Say this with me. I come to you, Heavenly Father, in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. I search my heart and I let go of all unforgiveness, all doubt, all fear, all unbelief, and any sin that would separate my mind and my heart from an awareness of you. I renounce all demonic influence, and by faith, I believe that I have received your forgiveness and I rest in your grace. I rebuke every curse spoken over me, including the curses I've spoken over myself. Did you just hear what you said? <laughs> Ooh. Wow. Here we go. I forgive. 
every person person who has ever cursed me me with their words or actions. And I believe believe that through the blood of Jesus Christ, Christ, right now, now, I am sanctified, sanctified, made holy, and set apart to God. I release honor to my parents. And I forgive them from every offense. I release them from all of my judgments and all of my punishments. Just let that sink in for a second. I believe that at the cross of Jesus Christ, I was delivered from every curse of the law. And so now I surrender to you, Lord Jesus, to set me free from every demonic influence that has affected me. It is my destiny destiny. to walk in freedom. freedom. I'm going to say this like you mean it. I was created for love. I was was designed for purity. I was was infused with life life to worship you, Jesus. I am a temple for your presence. presence. Holy Holy Spirit, fill me up. Overflow. Your love through me. Send your power and the presence of the helper, the comforter, the spirit of truth. I welcome you, Holy Spirit, to fill me now and forevermore. Thank you, Father, for setting me free. Amen. Jesus. How many of you, how many of you right now, you think of somebody, especially when we talked about the part with forgiveness, you, you have a name that came to mind, right? Right, Just keep your hand up, keep your hand up. All right, Father, right now, I pray that supernatural gift of forgiveness and grace would flow from your throne right now. Guys that are on the stage, just reach down and start laying hands on people. Weave through the crowd if you want. Just start laying hands on people. God, I release right now just a supernatural measure of grace. I just speak the grace of heaven over you. Speak the grace of heaven over you now. I just say grace to you. God, let grace flow through us in a way that sets free those who are captives and prisoners. So you hear chains falling off in this room all over the place right now. Come, Holy Spirit. <laughs> yeah, no, it's okay. Starting over here. Starting over here. Give yourself permission to be happy. It's all right. Let <laughs> I me mean, just don't, don't think you have the permission to feel joy anymore. I'm telling you tonight, you have permission to feel joy. So it's just going to like move like a wave across 
<laughs> Hitting in the middle now. <laughs> Some of you have held on to depression for so long it's become part of your identity. You're not even going to know yourself after tonight. It's okay. You got it in- introduced to the new you. <laughs> it's Christ in you. The presence of the Lord. A joy, that contagious joy. Some of you, I'm just watching like a blanket of darkness just kind of fall off your shoulders like you're letting go of a cape. Some of you are feeling like tons lighter. (laughs) That's good. That's so good. Oh, Jesus. I don't know if we have anybody to play some music or not, but that'd be kind of fun. We played something happy. No, no soaking music right now. How about something? Something you might hear in a church in England or like a pub in Ireland. Somewhere across between those two things. Thank you, Father, for your joy that sets us free. Thank you, Father, for your joy that sets us free. Thank you, God, for your joy. Just, just, lift, just lift your chin and just tip your head back and just thank him for the joy. Thank you, God, for your joy. Just feel the waterfall of grace. Feel the waterfall of grace. As you hear the Father say, I've never been ashamed of you. That's why I took all your shame, so you'd know I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not ashamed of you. Wow. Feel that. (laughs) Some of you thought deliverance was going to be messy, and you're like, man, this deliverance thing is fun. This is awesome. Jesus. Ooh, whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, now let's do something real uncomfortable. The people in the back, you came up here, I want you to find somebody in the front to hug. <laughs> this is it's going to be so unpleasant for some people.
washes over.